Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead and the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Today we saw new body camera video of paramedics attempting to revive George Floyd. And we heard firsthand from two of those medics who tried to save Floyd's life. Seth Bravender testified that Floyd, when he arrived on the scene, appeared to be motionless, did not appear to be breathing, and multiple officers were still on top of him. The medic said when he started to load Floyd's body into the ambulance, Floyd's body was limp. Today we also heard from George Floyd's girlfriend of three years. She testified about both of their struggles with opioid addiction, drug use that the defense will claim was partially responsible for Floyd's death, as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports. And, and before we go to that report, we must warn you, some of the images you're about to see are disturbing. The moments when paramedics arrived for George Floyd in May 2020 are coming into clear focus. Paramedics Seth Bravender and Derek Smith responded to the scene and arrived to an unresponsive Floyd. Smith seen here checking Floyd for vitals. Did not detect a pulse. And what did his condition appear to be to you overall? In lay terms, I thought he was dead. The checking began while now former officer Derek Chauvin still had his knee on Floyd's neck before Bravender stepped in. What were you attempting to do at that point in time? Uh, just have the officer move. And why did you need the officer to move? So we could move the patient. Because he, he was, uh, I guess limp would be the best description. Bravender testified a cardiac monitor showed Floyd's heart had flatlined. Basically tells us your heart isn't, isn't really doing anything at that moment. During cross-examination, the defense asked about whether overdose patients can regain consciousness and be aggressive. Have you personally seen that happen? Yes. Drug use was the center of how tearful testimony began Thursday. <laughs> Courtney Ross, George Floyd's girlfriend of three years, took the stand. But while emotional throughout, her testimony centered largely on both her and George Floyd's addiction to opioids. The classic story of uh, how many people get addicted to opioids. Well, did he have sports injuries that he complained of? Yes. His neck, um, and it, it down like from his neck to shoulder blade and down to his lower back. The defense for Derek Chauvin is trying to make the case it was drugs in George Floyd's system that killed him, not Chauvin's knee to the neck. So when it was their turn to question Ross, they asked about an emergency trip to the hospital Floyd had just two months before his death. You later learned that that was uh, due to an overdose? Yes. And did you learn what, that, what caused that overdose? No. At that time frame, did you learn that Mr. Floyd was taking anything other than opioids? No. Okay. You, you did not know that he had taken heroin at that time? No. She testified days before he died, Floyd was using again, but never complained of shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. Had Mr. Floyd been a, an active person physically? Yes, he was very active. <laughs> 
and court is on a break right now. But most recently, we've been listening to testimony from Minneapolis Fire Captain Jeremy Norton, who got to the scene shortly after paramedics had started working on Floyd. And he said he actually recognized the off-duty firefighter Genevieve Hansen, who helped fill him in on what had happened. He said they then had to put a device on Floyd to essentially breathe for him. And when he was asked if anyone at any point ever found a pulse, he said no. All right, Jake. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Jennifer, let me start with you. One of the paramedics who treated George Floyd testified that when he arrived on the scene, he thought there must have still been a struggle going on because the officers were on top of Mr. Floyd. But then he said he could tell from a distance that George Floyd was unresponsive, wasn't even breathing uh, from his view. Um, why is that important? Well, Jake, it's really powerful testimony in the prosecution's bid to kind of set these building blocks to show that Derek Chauvin's actions were unreasonable and, and constituted excessive force because the paramedic comes and sees immediately that George Floyd is limp. And in fact, he said in layman's terms, he thought he was dead. Meanwhile, you have these all of these police officers, including, of course, Officer Chauvin, literally right there on top of George Floyd. And it just raises the question in the jury's mind. How could they not have known? Why weren't they doing anything about the fact that Floyd was clearly non-responsive, if not dead at that moment? And Van, take a listen uh, to one of the paramedics describing why the paramedics did not treat George Floyd on the scene, instead loading him into the ambulance and relocating. You and your partner decided uh, to do what's called a load and go, right? Uh, To get into the ambulance, yes. Right. And to leave. To move, uh, we didn't leave, we moved to a different location, yes. Right. Um, and that was out of concern because of the people that were around, right? And the, the general atmosphere at the scene at that point. Yes, that was a part of it, yes. This seems to be part of the, the defense team's argument um, that the police officers on the scene, they were the ones who felt threatened. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the only thing that they can keep coming back to. Uh, and the problem is that the video itself uh, tells a very different story. Um, there's just it, it's a relatively small crowd of people. I mean, you would think that there were 20,000 people, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people like at the Capitol uh, doing some horrific, horrific stuff. You had a relatively small handful of people who were very upset because of what they have been describing all week as just a horror show of a man being tortured to death. But there's nobody throwing bricks. There's nobody throwing bottles. They're not calling for backup. The cops are not calling for more police to come out. Um, in fact, if the crowd had been that aggressive, they would have immediately gotten off of George Floyd to get in a, a defensive posture for themselves. So, you know, they're, they're trying to throw these little seeds of doubt out there, but it doesn't add up. Uh, you just have to hope that nobody on the jury falls for it. And Jennifer, the prosecution had Mr. Floyd's girlfriend talk in depth uh, about not just the relationship, but their drug use and the different types of pills they took. I, I know the prosecution is trying to head off arguments by the defense that those drugs and Mr. Floyd's uh, prior health conditions are what killed him, not Officer Chauvin. But do you think that was a risky move at all by the prosecution to, to introduce uh, this evidence that, that he was a, a drug addict? I don't think so, Jake. You know, they're really trying to, as you said, draw the sting. You don't ever want to have a gotcha moment where the defense lawyer makes it look like the prosecution is hiding something. So they're going to go ahead and front 
all of this potentially negative information about George Floyd. And it's really going to come front and center when we talk about causation, which will come in the next few days. So they're not going to be able to get away from it. Better just to get it out there, explain to the jury what it was all about. And I think nowadays with the way that we've seen the opioid epidemic over the last few years, jurors are not going to be as negative about that. They're going to be more understanding. And having the girlfriend explain how it all happened, how they both struggled with it, and letting her tell the jury about George Floyd and his struggles humanizes him in a way that, while maybe not helpful on the drug front, at least isn't as harmful as it could otherwise be. Yeah, that struck me too. And Van, um, the conversation about addiction has shifted in recent years uh, from a criminal issue to a public health issue. There's obviously a racial component here that that books and and half of Chappelle's act are focuses on. But but uh, the truth of the matter is, this country now has much greater awareness theoretically, of what addiction to opioids means. But there's really no telling how this jury is going to take that information. There really isn't. It is, in fact, the case that there are enough people now who know someone or have the experience, you know, somebody goes to get a a tooth pulled and all of a sudden they find themselves having a very hard time getting off of opioids, certainly people with with sports injuries. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, for better or for worse, uh, fair or unfair, I do think that Americans put the opioid addiction in a different car- category than other forms of addiction, and that could play out well uh, for uh, George uh, Floyd's family. Um, but you just never know. Um, some people you know, have a zero tolerance. You know, if, you, if you're addicted to anything, you must be a bad person. You only need one person that has that kind of a mindset on, on the jury to give you a bad outcome here. And that's all the defense needs, one person. Van, Jennifer, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. We're going to get back to the trial of Derek Chauvin in a second. But first, almost two years and counting inside a Russian prison with no communication with mom and dad. We're going to talk to Trevor Reed's parents about the fight to free their son next. In our world lead today, the parents of a U.S. Marine Corps veteran locked up in Russia are putting new faith in the Biden administration to help get their son back safely to U.S. soil. 29-year-old Trevor Reed has been in a Russian prison for almost two years now, secretly transferred just last month from one facility to another. Communication with his parents has been cut off. All this started in 2019 when Reed traveled to Russia to visit his girlfriend. After a night out partying, Reed found himself in a Russian jail, accused of assaulting two police officers. His parents say... Trumped-up charges led to a nine-year sentence behind bars. And his parents, Paula and Joey Reed, uh, joins us now. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to share the story uh, with us. Um, have, you, you. have you heard from your son since he was moved to a new detention facility last month? Uh, yes, we, within this morning, uh, he was able to make a short phone call. And how's he doing? Um, uh, he's he's healthy right now. Um, he's just uh, you know emotionally he's you know obviously concerned that he's going to be there for another eight years, uh, but otherwise he's doing okay. And you believe that Trevor's former job in the Marines has something to do with why Russia is so adamant on keeping him in custody? Tell us about that. Uh, yes, sir. First of all, he he's he is innocent. There were witnesses uh, that said what the police said was a lie. The uh, traffic camera video showed that the police lied and those from inside the police car and the police station were denied to the defense. It was clear to everyone that uh, it was a fake charge. But uh, 
Trevor's military background is why we believe he's been held. Uh, the FSB came to the police station that morning and interrogated him, asking nothing but things about his military career, which he, uh, you know, basically name, rank, and serial number, uh, old school. And uh, we've not spoken about his military career in Russia or here, but we think it's time that we speak out about his career. Uh, in boot camp, Marine boot camp, he joined the infantry, but he was selected for the presidential support program and then later became what's known as a presidential uh, secure, uh, a presidential guard. Uh, he was assigned Marine Barracks, Washington, D.C., and then he was assigned at Camp David uh, Presidential Retreat. And uh, he was honorably discharged after over five years. And uh, we, we believe this is one of the main reasons that uh, he was uh, held by the Russians and then given the longest prison sentence of anyone in Russia in 20 years for this charge. And he never hurt anyone never intended to hurt anyone. It's completely bogus. And also, that was during the uh, Obama administration. Obama-Biden administration, yes. yes. Yeah, and, and Paula, how are you doing with all of this? I can't, I can't imagine you, you've had a, a, any sleep in two years. Yes, basically, I do have a lot of sleepless nights, and so certain days I'm hardly able to function because of sleep deprivation. Sometimes just from uh, extreme worry, you know, you know all day long, I worry about things about Trevor. And mostly I worry about the time that's been taken away from him, the time that he's sitting there. Um, it's some of the best years of his life, you know. So it, it is hard. It's hard to deal with. Now, since the Biden administration has come into office, I'm told that you have been in touch with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. What did he have to say? He said he was going to... Uh, work hard, of course, to bring Trevor home and to, at every opportunity that they could, discuss bringing Trevor home with the Russians, that they would do that and that they would give us uh, transparency, let, let us uh, keep us in the loop about what they're doing, what they plan to do. And um, we were very pleased to hear that. And Joey, I understand you spent the better part of, of last year in Russia trying to be there for your son. This entire ordeal has had to be so draining on your entire family, not, not just financially, but emotionally uh, as well. Uh, yes, sir, both. We, I spent over 13 months in Russia uh, on two different trips, uh, working with the attorneys in the embassy uh, to, uh, you know, try and work through the uh, Russian legal system, which we've, you know, we finally realized is, is uh, it's not a judicial system, it's a punishment system. And everyone who gets into that system is considered guilty, and it's just a matter of uh, how long your sentence will be. And in Trevor's case, um, he he was put there, we believe, by the FSB, and then uh, that's that's how the case went. And so uh, it's uh, it's been draining on on us, uh, you know, emotionally and financially. But uh, we're we're doing all right. We're hanging in there and uh, just fighting for our son. We want the American public to know about him. And, uh, and maybe elevate his case uh, with, with the White House. Let's make sure that President Biden and President Putin know about this and know that we are paying attention and that Trevor Reed deserves to come home. Paula and Joey Reed, thank you so much for your time. Stay in touch. We'll have you back. Hopefully there won't be much of a need to, but we're going to stay on the case with you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank Mr. you Tapper. very much. We appreciate it. The trial of Derek Chauvin has resumed. Right now, a retired officer with the Minneapolis Police Department is testifying. Let's listen in. What result in me doing that? Uh... 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.